My next guest is Patrick Deneen, an American political theorist, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. He's also the author of Why Liberalism Failed, which we'll no doubt find time to talk about, not least because where the subject matter relates to fairly recent historical shifts in the political settlements of the West, the fact that we are now in the grips of the biggest economic seizure of the 21st century due to the coronavirus pandemic, it looks increasingly like a decisive paradigm shift is on the horizon. I don't want to force the direction of our conversation, Patrick, um, nor presume your thoughts about any of the themes we're going to cover here. So I'll just start by asking you to say what you've been thinking about these past few weeks. Well, I mean, you know, if you were to write the science fiction novel of where we are in 20 years from now, I think you could have viable stories uh, that would be really very different. Um, And that from this perspective right now would seem, you know, you could see a very clear path to the direction that society as a whole might take. So let me let me start with the ones that I'm, I'm most fearful of, uh, and then maybe, maybe we'll move to a conversation of where I have um, at least some hope, if not entirely optimism. But the, what, what I'm most fearful of is in some ways a kind of doubling down in the in the direction in which you can already see Western society moving, and that that was really a kind of you know, a kind of managerial, uh, sort of a techno-managerial state with growing sort of authoritarianism in a kind of statist, kind of what we call crony capitalism on this side. I don't know if that's a British phrase, but uh, a kind of statist capitalism, a managed capitalism, more or less managed by a cooperation of, of elites in the public and the private sector. This is all described by James Burnham in his uh, 1941 book, The The Managerial Revolution. You know, we talked about a kind of uh, the the ownership, the sort of ownership of of technique becoming the most important feature of the new elite. And and you can already see the outlines of how there would be a doubling down of this kind of techno managerialism. Uh, combined with a growing authoritarianism at the central state level uh, in which the economy would be, as we're seeing right now, of course, to the extent we have an economy, it's entirely run by various Federal Reserve, European banks and so forth. Uh, and in which, you know, the, the divide, this divide that we've seen between the kind of working class um, sort of ordinary you know, the, the kind of Brexit voter and so forth, the divide between those people and, and, and the techno managers um, would become, it seems to be even wider uh, with real potential of political instability that would either lead to a real crackdown on the part of the those who run the state or the potential for a real social breakdown uh, in, in our society. So that that's the scary version of, of, uh, of what I see as a real possibility. You'll no doubt be aware that Donald Trump has just today announced that he will be halting funding to the World Health Organization for failing to adequately respond to the coronavirus. This is a typical Trumpian move. It's very much what we'd expect, a hostile gesture of non-participation aimed at global institutions that gives short shrift to the experts and which will no doubt go down very well among his biggest fans. No, I think this is exactly, exactly right. So I'm sure you have similar kinds of discussions in which it seems to have become the part of the news industry, and this is part of this technocratic managerial elite, to insist that we defer to experts, that the experts can provide for us all of the necessary decisions that have to be taken in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. And so a kind of an appeal to a seemingly depoliticized world 
in which we rely upon experts to make decisions purporting to have no political requirement, input, or implications, which you know, I think is a complete fabrication and a fiction. Now, now Trump isn't to some extent deferring to the experts around him. He doesn't want to be seen as responsible for you know, massive numbers of deaths from this virus. But he's certainly playing the part of someone who regularly denounces the rule of experts, even in his inarticulate way, insists upon the necessity of making these decisions as a matter of prudence and politics. And this is this is part of why he's trying to argue that on the one hand, of course, we want to save lives, but we also want to reopen the country because the consequence of a, of a shuttered economy will also cost lives. It's not as if it's a, it's an either or situation. But, but what's been striking to me about this this division that we're seeing in the in the Western world is it's a kind of division between this outsourcing of democracy to the experts a reaction among populists from a position of a kind of anti-expertise. But I think both this reflects a genuine loss of what you could describe as the, as the more genuine alternative to the rule of expertise, which is the rule of the commons. And the rule, in some ways, of a kind of a common sense. You could describe, I think the British tradition has better authors and figures who've described this, whether from you know, Edmund Burke or G.K. Chesterton, that there's a kind of source of wisdom and a source of good sense and, and experience that derives from the everyday experience of human beings as they live their lives. And that this, this storehouse is, is in many ways, is, is discoverable and, and can be tapped by ordinary people through their shared experience in the common lives that they live together. And I would say one of the consequences of liberalism broadly that, that we could say is the, has led to the rise of this techno-managerial elite has been the destruction of that part of our society, the destruction of the kind of the, the resources of common sense. The contraction of people's lives as a result of social distancing measures and restrictions on personal autonomy is something else I wanted to raise with you. Self-isolation, of course, entails retreat into the privacy of our own homes, but it has also caused people to look around at their communities and their neighbours with a renewed sense of place, a sense of being situated, of having people around them who they may help or indeed may ask help from. As a Catholic communitarian yourself, do you think the pandemic could leave us with a lasting sense of the importance of where we live and who among yeah, so this, this would be just a turn to the more hopeful side. And where would you begin to rebuild the sense of the commons, the capacity for people together to exercise a kind of common sense? And, and this is where I do see that if if we move in a different direction, I, I think there would be a real possibility of something to be celebrated and cultivated and uh, and advanced. Um, and that, that I think you begin at the right place. I mean, it's an odd thing to say that we, in some ways, are experiencing each other more locally, more in the sense of neighborhood and community. All the while, we're isolating, we're 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 keeping distance from each other. And yet, and yet, I think you know, in contrast to kind of liberal individualism. You know, at its best, this is a kind of an, an odd, an odd way to, to demonstrate our commitment to a kind of common good, and that it's it's tending to take place not not in an abstract sense, not not that I'm acting on behalf of the common good of of some abstract entity. It's really you know for our neighbors, for the elderly, uh, for the old people in our communities, for the people who, who may have immune system compromise. Um, I, I think there's something palpable and tactile about the sacrifice we're making right now. And it's something that at least in, in my experience of the West, 
it's something that we've expected from our soldiers. We certainly expect right now from our medical personnel, and it's being celebrated. But very few of us have been asked uh, have been asked to make these kinds of sacrifices. But I think it has the potential of drawing us out of ourselves in ways that I think we've been uh, have, have not been called upon and not exercised those particular faculties uh, in in a very long time. Yeah, that gets us on to one of the central themes of your book, Why Liberalism Failed, which is the modern understanding of freedom, of liberty, yeah. and our sense of entitlement to it. So in, in my book, I describe liberalism as in part a, uh, resting on a new definition of liberty, right? So so liberty is a very old concept. Uh, it's a very old word. It dates back to, to Roman, ancient Roman times, libertas. So it's not a new li- – liberty itself is not a new understanding, but the modern understanding of liberty, uh, as you described it, this, this idea of the autonomous individual, the sort of self-making self, um, it really rests on a redef- redefinition of liberty that takes place in the early modern period. Uh, and, I, and I really focused on two aspects uh, of, this, of this core redefinition of liberty. The first, the first of these was really in the world of political philosophy, I think also theology – which was a, a kind of, uh, let's say, a, a belief in theory, a belief in philosophy that became more and more true in practice, at least in our, in our um, experience of the world, which is the belief in our self-sufficiency. So this is the image of the human being existing in the state of nature, the person who can survive, uh, exist without any kind of reliance upon connection to relationship with any other human being and this is described as our natural condition this is what we this is what we are by nature uh, and in many ways modern society it, you could say modern liberal society is designed to give us and increase our experience of ourselves in the world as self-sufficient people as self-making selves the second aspect that I focus on really comes more from the world of, of the natural sciences, but also has philosophical and even theological implications and sources, which is the belief that our liberty rests upon our thorough conquest of nature, that nature has to become our subject, a locus of our dominion and our mastery. And I think one of the things this virus has really revealed to us is the deficiency and even the falsity of both of these claims. I mean, what you were just saying about, you know, think about how this has changed our understanding of what work is important or even the sense of self-sufficiency that that we have. We, we built an economic order that gave us the illusion of self-sufficiency because everyone could be more or less invisible to us. All of the products that we enjoy appeared in a way invisible to us. And now suddenly we are in just 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 dazzlingly conscious of the ways that the basic goods of, of that we require for life, how these are being provided by the people who were, you know, four weeks ago, who were almost invisible to us, who, 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 who economically didn't exist, who are at the bottom of the economic scale, the people who work in the grocery stores, the delivery people, uh, the people who supply uh, um, the various staples of life. And now suddenly we're very aware that we're not self-sufficient, that we're deeply reliant upon people and people who, who we, you know, might have regarded as less than important in modern market terms. So I think that that illusion has been really shattered uh, by our experience, and it will be really interesting when we come out of this whether we want to go back 
to this illusion, which will be tempting for many people, or whether we'll have have seen and experienced a newborn consciousness um, of the ways in which the least among us, right, the workers among us, uh, have to be more visible in many ways. And, and I, sec- secondly, I just would just note that the idea of the conquest of nature, I think, I think the virus is showing that nature um, is resilient in its own ways. I always think the environmental crisis uh, has shown this to us. But of course, this is a much more vivid uh, and um, you know, dr- dramatic and drastic example of the ways that modern society rests on another false presupposition that somehow we can work in almost in in contrary ways um, to, to, ne- to to the um, you know, to, to the surprises of nature and to the necessities and requirements of nature. Um, and of course, we're all hoping for a cure, some way of, of, um, of overcoming this great plague. But at the same time, I think it is an abject lesson that we are not, not simply the masters of nature, that nature is something, um, that requires our respect and even at some level a kind of deference. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up the effect that this period of time has had on nature. I think anyone who ventures outside their front door is, acutely aware that whatever other effects our isolated lives may be having, it's giving the natural world a reprieve. Um, During this time, I've been reading The Revolt of the Elites by Christopher Lash, who I know is a seminal influence on you. Lash writes in this book about the urban sociologist Ray Oldenburg's prescription of the third place, the place where informal meeting happens, where societies receive, as you mentioned earlier, their common sense, in the truest sense of that phrase. Another hope, I suppose, is that people could learn during this period to cherish public spaces more, having been deprived of them for so long. What, what do you think? I'm struck, struck that you mentioned uh, two two of, of the authors who were, as you mentioned, have been seminal in my thinking. And I've actually been thinking quite a lot about Christopher Lash and actually Oldenburg's book, The Great Good Place, which is a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, I've, I've been struck... Um, I think in a, in a similar theme, that one of the defining features of the modern world, it seems to me this is a this is a core feature of liberalism, the principle of separation. And we can think of this, of course, as the division of labor. This is one of the ways you can make your needs less visible. The less knowledge you have of how the various things that you need, desire, want, uh, procure, consume, arise, the more you can actually exist in a kind of bubble of sort of almost self-delusional independence, right? Um, that this is one of the hallmarks of the division of labor is to shroud from us, you know, how how my coffee arrived, um, you know, at my, at my doorstep, you know, what were the steps that were taken? I think for many of us, uh, I'm certainly finding this, is this, this enforced quarantine, this kind of cultivating a kind of deep reconnection with my, you know, my immediate people, with my family, and a connection that is, overcoming the separations of modern life. Obviously, we're working. I'm working at home. My wife is working at home. My daughter, my son are schooling at home. Uh, I'm, I'm actually somewhat more involved now because I sort of see them and listen in to what they're doing. We're doing a lot more what we could call kind of traditional home economics. Uh, we've taken to a lot more baking. Uh, we've really gotten into the chemistry of yeast and sourdough. A lot of cooking. We've begun. We've begun growing our garden early. We want to get our plants in early, thinking that we might want to have some fresh food available to us uh, sooner than usual. Um, 
and uh, and so the uh, the discovery of kind of home economics and the in the classic sense of that, that word economics actually means the rule or laws of the home oikos nomos in the greek uh the discovery uh, of the connection between home and work uh school uh even a worship we've been worshiping at home as opposed to going off to church uh, these are things i also view as a kind of blessing and i wonder again one possibility is that the experience of a kind of overcoming the principle of separation might lead to a flourishing, let's say, of this sense of connectedness and the overcoming of separation as we emerge from our homes and connect these in our communities. I do think it needs to be cultivated, encouraged. We can't simply rely on it. It seems to me that we might go in one of many different directions. Um, but I think, I think there's a real possibility, as you point out, for a kind of revival of a kind of economics of the home, the demotion of driving of the automobile, of the need always to be hopping on an airplane, uh, and, and, and a real resurgence of the love of place that it seems to me is the real source of, of a more genuine way of ruling ourselves and governing ourselves, as well as living in some concert with the natural world that, that of course, we have to be a part of and has to be a part of where we are and, and are partaking of those places. Yes, I, I share every one of the hopes you described just then, that this period will appreciate the value of what is close by and disillusion us of the need for constant mechanised travel. Just as these weeks highlight the value of work we've tended to overlook or take for granted, um, so too the work of what another figure Lash mentions in The Revolt of the Elites, Robert Reich, calls symbolic analysts, lawyers, academics, consultants, stockbrokers, etc., work that trades in abstract symbols, seems ever more questionable in terms of its basis in reality. Would you agree? You know, you're, you're right. And I, and I think, um, you know, I, I, I've always told my students, I've taught at some very good institutions. My, my first job was Princeton. Next job was at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and now at the University of Notre Dame. I've always told my students that it would be a really valuable part of their education if we, the people who ran these institutions, um, required them to not only, of course, to to secure those necessary and essential, well, maybe not necessary, but socially necessary skills of being a symbolic analyst, whatever that might be, whether it's become a financial analyst, what's become a policy analyst and so forth. Whether in addition to that, we were to require them to um, gain some skill of how to work, do things in the real world. Right. So, for example, um, know how to work um, and know how to fix plumbing or, uh, you know, know how to fix um, an electric circuit, uh, how to how to install a plug. Very dangerous kind of activity. Um, in other words, that one of the great dangers and I think Christopher Lash was really on to this in 1995 in his, his essay uh, in the book Revolt of the Elites is that the symbolic the, the real danger of the people of the symbolic who, who occupy these positions of symbolic analyst is a complete divorce in some ways from what we might describe as the real world, the sort of physical world. Uh, it, it, toward the, I don't know if you've come across Lash's writing. Toward the end of his life, he became really interested in Gnosticism and began writing a series of essays, really remarkable essays in the New Oxford Review, crit criticizing these kind of extensive and very pointed critiques of Gnosticism. And I think he was beginning to understand that this this obsession with controlling these symbolic sort of abstract figures was really a, a kind of modern form of Gnosticism, 
a kind of uh, a div- something that divorced that which was supposed to matter from the world of physical material things. And, and for this reason, it was building a society based upon a kind of, again, a fiction, almost a theological error uh, that sought to demote and overcome the core physical aspect of our existence. And I always thought it would be a really a, a valuable thing for the people who are going to occupy these positions of importance to encounter these kinds of skills because it would introduce that amid the, the kind of work that they would be doing, there was the kind of work that actually had real limits, real rules, right? Uh, 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 required a certain set of steps to achieve those, to, to achieve those ends. You know, it couldn't just be done but with a shortcut. Uh, that would, that would introduce a kind of dose of reality into the unreality of the work that they were largely going to be occupied doing. So I think one thing that would be not just of value theoretically, but today in a very practical sense would be to have some access to a knowledge of these skills that would once have been part of a kind of cultural inheritance, something you would learn from your father or your mother, right? Baking bread or learning to fix something in your house and how valuable that would be, not just as a kind of corrective, to the to the to the disembodied existence that many of us occupy, but a corrective also to the kind of sense that I don't matter or the, or the work that I do uh, uh, doesn't matter because I have uh, you know I have the capacity to do the kinds of things and the kind of work that's always going to matter and that's always going to have a kind of application, especially now perhaps. I'm loath to drag us away from the hopeful pool of light there and into the darkness again, but you mentioned the word inheritance. And you write in Why Liberalism Failed about Western civilization having produced societies that principally pass on debt as an inheritance to their young. Uh, I think it's clear, as I said at the beginning, that the economic consequences of this are going to be huge. Um, How vivid are your fears about this? There is a real possibility of a kind kind of populist reaction um, to our, uh, you know, to, to the circumstances in which we'll find ourselves that will make our our current and previous populist moment almost modest by comparison because we we have an economy that as you note has been run on on leverage um, it's been run on not just debt but on on leveraged debt on basically massive you know sort of huge amount of risk um, in the belief of a sort of ceaseless economic growth, a kind of almost a Ponzi scheme in which no one in this generation would be the one stuck holding the bag. Uh, it would be some future generation. And I think underlying that, this kind of delusional progressive belief that the merry-go-round would never cease and uh, the, the music would never stop playing. So you could say that there's there's debt that has some justification, but a lot of the debt that we have undertaken has been to undergird this experience of ourselves as self-making selves. I really do think it's about the creation of human beings that exist without even the illusion of relying upon other human beings. And one of the ways you do this is you kick your reliance into future generations so that so that the people who are paying for your pleasure today are completely invisible to you. Uh, so we're not just experiencing... Um, it seems to me a, a crisis in which we're going to increase the debt. We're experiencing the crisis that comes when you already are such an indebted society that the only way you can confront uh, a civilizational sort of cataclysm like we're experiencing right now is to increase the levels of debt so that you prevent the system from collapsing. And that's really what's been happening. 
So what we're going to have is continue to have is this two-tier society in which the wealthy will be backstopped by the printing presses of the central banks, in which those who are less wealthy, the, the, the small owners, the small businessmen, obviously the, the gig workers and so forth, are going to see, going to witness firsthand and experience firsthand how deeply, you know, sort of systemically unequal the system is based upon whether or not you have a realistically repayable debt or a debt that will be backstopped uh, by, you know, broadly by the system. Where's your third place, Patrick, the place you're anxious to return to, to be among others, to break bread with them? Uh, well, it will depend on uh, the day of the week and what, what time. Um, it will either be uh, to gather with friends, uh, perhaps on a, on a porch, um, uh, share, share some glasses together, uh, or it will be to go to church. Uh, I've been um, craving uh, to be in the presence of the sacrament uh, and uh, uh, to worship together with, with our community. So uh, in a sense, both of those are born of the same origin, uh, desire to share communion and community. Uh, and uh, uh, one of those two will be first or second. Okay, so your corner table stands squarely in God's house. Amen. (laughs) Well, with that image of friends coming together on the porch, I'd just like to end by casting back to when we first met in London uh, last year at the University of Notre Dame campus there. I believe I asked you really quite naively how well you knew the work of Wendell Berry, to which you replied, Pretty well. I've spent many hours talking Indeed. to the man on his porch. I've, I've since become more familiar with his poetry, particularly the Mad Farmer poems. Yeah. There's an extract I read recently, which I'd like to read here, if I may, because it captures the current feeling so well. Yeah. Come all ye conservatives and liberals who want to conserve the good things and be free. Come away from the merchants of big answers, whose hands are metalled with power, from the union of anywhere and everywhere by the purchase of everything from everybody at the lowest price, and the sale of anything to anybody at the highest price, from the union of work and debt, work and despair, from the wage slavery of the helplessly well-employed, from the union of self-gratification and self-annihilation, secede into care for one another, and for the good gifts of heaven and earth. Come into the light of the body, the one body granted to you, in all the history of time, come into the body's economy, its daily work, and its replenishment at mealtimes and at night. Come into the body's thanksgiving, when it knows and acknowledges itself a living soul. Come into the dance of the community, joined in a circle, hand in hand, the dance of the eternal love of women and men for one another, and of neighbours and friends for one another. Always disappearing, always returning, calling his neighbours to return, to think again of the care of flocks and herds, of gardens and fields, of woodlots and forests, and the uncut groves, calling them separately and together, calling and calling. He goes forever toward the long restful evening, and the croak of the night heron over the river at dark. Marvellous. I'm struck. Was there a line early on where you, where he speaks of the merchants of the big answer? That's right. Yeah, that's a, that's a striking line. Actually, I've been reading quite a bit of Wendell Berry myself. Um, in particular, um, many of his essays in which he defends what he usually calls local knowledge, uh, what we in some ways what I've been calling culture. Um, 
the kind of bottom up form of knowledge. And um, in particular, I mean, this is a, it's a great example of the kind of knowledge you could say contrasts with the knowledge, the sort of top down knowledge of the expert. Uh, and this is exactly what I, what I began by talking about, that this is the this is the reservoir of self-governance. Right, that that can exist in a local community, and in particular, it seems to me that this is the kind of the form of knowledge and the form of being in the world that Wendell Berry describes beautifully there. In contrast to the merchants of the big answer, that would contrast to a system that is revealed to be entirely fragile. Right, <laughs> this is our system. I think I think one of the things this, this virus has revealed is how fragile our system is. Right, it nearly again our economy nearly collapsed about three weeks ago because of the, uh, and it may still do so because of the sort of rolling uh, sort of avalanche of unpayable debt that was in was on the brink of rendering the banks and the various financial institutions broke, which would have they said was going to basically stop the monetary system. Right, the monetary system would cease to exist, and. Whereas in, in an essay that Barry writes in defense of local knowledge, it's this bottom-up understanding of what makes a society work over time, over a long period of time, that gives it a kind of resilience, right, that, that resists the fragility of systems that are too big, that can only, right, be subject to, the, to one big answer. Uh, and I think this is this, again, this might be a lesson that we can learn or relearn. And it seems to me reading not just a bit of Christopher Lash, but reading a good amount of Wendell Berry right now might be a good way to spend some of these hours of, of quarantine. Patrick, this has been a joy. Thank you. I'll see you when you're next in London. Until then, stay well. Cheers. Thanks. Be well. Thanks.